1: Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on The Table podcast today is cultural apologetics. How do we defend the faith and explain the faith using a cultural approach? I have two guests coming to you via Zoom today. First guest is Tim Yoder, who teaches in our theology program here at Dallas Seminary. Welcome, Tim.
2: Thank you, McHale. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, good to have you back on the show. We've had Tim on the show before. It's always a good conversation. I love talking to you about apologetics and philosophy. And our second guest coming to us also via Zoom today is Paul Gould. And Paul is the uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. He's got a nice palm tree in the back there. Um, Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul.
3: Thanks, Michael, It's great to be here with both you and Tim.
1: Well, today we're talking about this whole idea of cultural apologetics. And we have you guys on the show because of your work in helping people defend the faith, working in culture. And Paul actually has written a book called Cultural Apologetics. And the subtitle is Renewing the Christian Voice. Conscience and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. Now, just to help us kind of set the table for our discussion, Paul, could you explain uh, what is cultural apologetics?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Actually, let me give you a story of how that book came about, because it'll answer that question um, both directly and indirectly. But, uh, you know, I was teaching at a seminary in Texas a number of years ago, and uh, we are developing some new courses, and And I said, hey, let's teach a course on cultural apologetics. That sounds really important. And uh, of course, I got assigned to teach it myself. And so, As I was preparing to teach that class, I did what any educator would do. I Googled it and said, what is cultural apologetics? (laughs) I had no idea. And uh, you know, there was very little at the time, Mm -hmm. this was six, seven years ago. And so what I did that first year is I just grabbed six or seven books that I was interested in on the nexus of like gospel and apologetics and culture, and kind of used it as a research center. And then the next year I swapped out those seven books and did seven more. And then I think it was two or three times I did that and finally began to sort of be able to answer that question, Mm. at least for me. What is cultural apologetics? And so the answer that I sort of unpack um, in that book is this Cultural apologetics is working to renew the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that Christianity will be seen as true and satisfying. Hmm. In other words, you know, the human heart is on this journey, uh, and we long for a story that's both true to the way the, t- the world is. And also true to the way the world ought to be, and so that's kind of my understanding of what uh, what we're doing when we do cultural apologetics.
1: Hmm. Uh, Tim, what would you add to that?
2: Well, I've read Paul's book, and uh, and it's it's great. By the way, it's full of all kinds of tremendous discussions and illustrations and thoughtful stuff. I, I've uh, I've marked it up, and uh, and uh, so I I, uh, I highly highly recommend it, and uh, it's it's good stuff. Um, so. Um, I also have been teaching apologetics uh, for a while at a couple different schools, and um, and in thinking about how we do apologetics, um, it occurred to me that uh, that a lot of times people think of apologetics. They have this caricature of a of an angry debater, maybe in a. It, you know, not terribly expensive suit going toe-to-toe with, you know, an evolutionist and the arguments and back and forth and uh, the passion and maybe there's a little name-calling and this this kind of caricature of really high-level intellectual apologetics and arguments pro and con and back and forth. And um, it occurred to me that that's not really the only way that we can defend the faith. And so what I began to think of as cultural apologetics is – is the use of cultural means um, arts um, popular culture uh you know sculpture literature dance i mean all kind all the arts mm-hmm. to make the gospel attractive that's what i think of and I, I think that i think that we're using different language and i think that what what is uh, saying and i'm saying are pretty close together making the gospel attractive not necessarily trying really hard to to prove it or to establish it but but making making it uh, attractive some making it uh, look good um, showing it in its best light uh, letting uh, the these deep sort of emotional or spiritual truths uh, refresh the, the weary heart of the seeker mm-hmm. or, or even of the Christian.
1: Yeah, I think there is uh, kind of a stereotype of apologetics as a kind of a a debate thing instead of a dialogue thing. Um, And, you know, Tim and I have done events on this where we talk about apologetics as conversation, as genuine dialogue. Um, And arguably 99% of people who are engaged in defending the faith, uh, who are engaged in talking to their skeptical friends and their uh, family members, coworkers who practice different religions, you are not in an academic game where you're in debate mode. And so uh, beyond. that, when you're not in Q&A mode, what are you going to do, right? What are you going to say? How are we going to approach people? I think some people are asking questions like, is Christianity true? But other people have kind of gotten this impression that Christianity isn't even good. And so they're not even asking, is Christianity true? And I think this is one area where cultural apologetics can really help uh, help us engage. Now, Paul, you talk about um, this genuine missionary encounter that we have to have as people who are um, engaging in this this defense of the faith. Unpack that a little bit for us. What is this genuine missionary encounter approach?
3: You know, so before I was a professor, I was a campus minister on college campuses. And, and the question that sort of animated me for all those years was, how does the gospel get a fair hearing, uh, you know, on the campus? And it just seemed like uh, Christianity was maligned and misunderstood in the classroom and students were getting beat up with it. And But wait, I thought truth was on our side and, and things like that. And so, I guess I, I came to realize over the years, and as I've been wrestling with that question, um, I just realized that Christianity has this image problem, and that's no surprise mm-hmm. to any of us, you know, today in this culture. Um, and, and I, the way that I kind of think about it is, you know, no one no, we no longer see the relevancy of Jesus to all aspects of life, even as Christians often. And we're largely anti-intellectual. And so as a result, the Christian voice has been muted in culture. And so nobody wants to hear hear from us. And then um, not just that, though. If you think about, um, for many of us, we're just as fragmented as the, you know, our non-believing neighbors. Uh, or we read weekly of Christian leaders that disqualified themselves from ministry for a moral failure or something like that. And so, what happens is that the church is no longer able to sort of fulfill the the prophetic role that we've been called to fulfill mm-hmm. and to speak it to, to the darkness with light and salt and, and things like that. And so, as a result, we've lost the Christian conscience in the culture. And so, you know, it's not viewed as lovely or attractive, mm-hmm. but it's even worse than that. Um, in many ways, Christians look at the world pretty much the same way as everyone else. And we use words like mundane or ordinary or everyday to describe the world that we find ourselves in. But when you think about it, biblically, that's not the world that we find ourselves in, right? The The, the proper word is that this world is deeply mysterious and beautiful and enchanted, or to use the proper word, it's sacred, it's holy. And so, as a result though, we've largely begun to, uh, we've lost the Christian imagination as well. So, if you add all that stuff up. Up. What happens though is that Christianity is no longer viewed as plausible or desirable, or, or often both. And so Leslie Newbegin, this is the question that you asked. Um, wrote, wrote this wonderful book. You know, he was sent from Great Britain to India in the 1930s. Spent 40 years faithfully ministering. He comes back to his sending sending country. You know, in the 1970s, realizes that he has to have a, a missionary encounter with his own sending country. That, as he would put it, has become post-Christian mm-hmm. in the years that he was away. And so he asks this question in this book that he wrote called "The Foolishness to the Greeks." And I think it's really our crucial question for a post-Christian age. But the question was, how do we have a genuine missionary encounter with the whole way of thinking, perceiving, and living that we call modern Western culture? And I think that question, call it Newbegin's question, is really our crucial question. Of course, it's not like the ultimate question, it's the penultimate question. The ultimate question is, we want every person to ask, what do you make of Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. But New Begin understood so well that we can't get to that question unless we pay attention to the, to the sort of collective mindset, the collective um, emotional response patterns, the conscience, as well as the collective imagination of our culture, you know, that doesn't even think that what we have to say is relevant. And so, that's uh, that's the question uh, and the need for Genuine missionary encounter
1: mm-hmm. today. Yeah, know it's so true. I was a missionary with the Baptist General Conference for a few years in the Philippines doing missionary work there. And when I came back, I started. I uh, was a youth pastor in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in California, and well, talk about a culture where you know uh, Christians are are cultural minorities for sure, mm-hmm. and had high school ministry on the campuses there. Um, it's it was it's really the kind of thing where you have to step back and, and do that that missionary uh, investigation before you just begin to engage, whether you're in an overseas context or whether you're in a, a local context, um, to really find out where, where people are and what their, their longings are. Uh, we did a show, actually we did a series of shows here on The Table Podcast on world religions, respectfully engaging world religions, and we asked them three questions. One, what makes this religion attractive to um, adherents? What makes it Attractive, uh, what what keeps it lo- what keeps people loyal to the religion? and then how does the gospel step into that space? And so I think these kinds of things, these kinds of questions are are kind of where where we're we're going here with this discussion. Um, Tim, let's talk about seeing ourselves in um, in this role in terms of like how Paul, understood the people that he was talking to in in Athens. what What is our Athens like? I would I'll ask Tim first and then I'll Paul ask you to comment as well. Um, what is our Athens like? It's
2: actually hard to uh, to say because our culture is is so diverse and, uh, and and has so many elements. When Paul went to Athens, you know he saw um, the statues and the temples, and those were the things the Athenians were very proud of. And he, you know, in the famous uh, famous line, uh, "I even see that you worship the unknown god. Let me tell you all about him." and um, and so that was his his entree. I think that maybe one one thing that um, uh, one thing one aspect of our Athens um, is that uh, Americans we we're in we're an, an entertainment culture um, we uh, we 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 work hard. <laughs> I think most of us, Um, but then we like to. We like we we really um, because of our because of our wealth and our technology. um, We're we're looking to be entertained, whether it's you know on our phones, social media, television, movies, music, video games, right, Uh, sports. We're looking for entertainment, and um, and of course. In some ways, the entertainment is supposed to help us to to fill the void, right? To -hmm. give us something to look forward to. We view that as a reward for a hard day's work, but but that is very escapist. It's just it's just helping us to forget and to, um, you know. So we watch a and and we watch a show, a movie, something, and the more implausible it is in some ways the better right the more that it's removed from reality of animated or science fiction or you know superhero marvel universe whatever um but ironically ironically all of that entertainment um Contains a storyline, mm-hmm. and storylines actually point us point us back to the gospel. Yeah. Storylines always have that which is good, that which is evil. They have a hero trying to um, learn about himself or herself, uh, tr- you know, working in opposition to maybe forces that are bigger than he or she. And 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 those are things that point us back to the gospel. And so so even in the entertainment culture there is a kind of common ground a touchstone to the gospel mm-hmm. and um and so i think that i think that um uh, movies music um books uh, television are are excellent stepping stones towards the gospel if, if used properly um i give i give you one one simple example um the the story of uh, the, the the person of uh, Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, um, and uh, whether whether you read the book um, or the, the the musical or the movie, right? The, the character of Jean Valjean is is an amazing picture of Christ in a lot of ways. Not only is he a mm-hmm. picture of Christ, but he's also a picture of a redeemed sinner, especially in the beginning and that fantastic encounter with the with the Catholic priest when he's accused of stealing and the priest, you know. See, forgot I gave you these two and you forgot yeah, all about it yeah. it was it was it's a, it's a, an amazing display of grace if you don't know what I'm talking about read the book or, or read the movie and, and, and uh, the movie is a lot shorter than the book um, <laughs> but uh, it's it I remember that the first time that I read it chills you know, over mm-hmm. me in, the, in this amazing picture of grace. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, I think that's, that's, you know, awakening our imagination, feeling the power of the gospel, um, hearing it, feeling it touch something deep within us.
1: Yeah, books uh, and movies are a great way to do that. I think certainly we live in a pluralistic culture, so there's not just yeah. one culture we're engaging with, but cultures in the plural. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast.
0: I'm sure you've been there.
1: And so, you know, what's your Athens look like? Maybe person relative to some extent. Um, but Paul, could you give us more of a, a higher higher level understanding of, of how to think about our Athens?
3: Um, in the book I talk about, like, I actually reflect on New Begin's question. You know, he says, what is the dominant way? i making connections with the dominant way of living, perceiving, and thinking. And I do give some, uh, you know, I, I think the dominant way of uh, perceiving is this word disenchantment, where we no longer see the world in its proper light. That's what I mean. Um, we don't see it as sacred and gift. I think the dominant way of thinking, the the word I gave is sensate, that we're fixed on the physical, the sensory. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, junior devil to senior devil in that little book of his screw tape letter, mm-hmm. basically says your job is to fix their minds on the, you know, the stream of ex- sensual experience and, and and don't awaken their rational faculties because then they'll pertain to universal matters. And so that's kind of describes our, our dominant way of thinking is sensate or focused on the physical, the experience. And then a hedonistic, you know, we go from one bite-sized episode of pleasure to another. But I think the more I've been, since I wrote the book, that book, uh, I've been thinking about like, what are some metaphors to help us understand what um, disenchantment or secularism is like in the West? And there are a couple metaphors. One that I think is really helpful for me uh, actually comes from Philip Reif, who wrote this wonderful little book. He's a Jewish sociologist. He wrote a book um, called My Life Among the Death Works. But he basically says the culture we find ourselves in now is, is unlike any culture in the history of the world in this sense. Um, Every culture prior to our own thought that there was a tight connection between the sacred order and the natural order, and, and there was a thread that, that would connect them. But this culture alone, you know, in the modern Western world, we've, we've severed that cord. And so I think this idea of um, you know the the, the severed cord is, is a kind of good metaphor to help us think about. And that's why, as Tim said earlier, you know, there's so many different um, cultures within culture. Well, Philip Reeve would say what we have, what what culture is when you sever that connection between the sacred and the and the natural order. Mm-hmm. Um, he just says all that's left is is a warring series of fragments. You know, mm-hmm. and everyone's nice. You know, the dominant motif is actor theater. You know, and mm-hmm. and and so yeah. So I, I think that it is hard to ki- characterize. Our world because there's no there's no uh, no unifying thread that that
1: yeah. um, you know dominates. Yeah, even with movies and, and TV, ironically nowadays, because uh, we just have so many streaming platforms, we there there is less and less actually of a shared kind of yeah. uh, popular culture even nowadays. Um, so I find that uh, you know an, an additional challenge that we have to, to deal with as well. So people are longing for truth, goodness, beauty. Uh, we're, we're trying to identify where are those longings? How does the gospel speak into that space? What are some of the barriers that we see in our culture that are best um, best approached through this cultural apologetics lens? Um, Paul, would you say are some of the barriers that you see?
3: Yeah. Um, oh, man. I mean, yeah, there's multiple barriers uh, because multiple people in multiple cultures. But um, mm-hmm. I think uh, probably... I think one of the barriers is, is um, you know, for so many years, apologetics, I think as T- Tim was alluding to earlier, has focused our guns on defending the rationality of our faith. Mm-hmm. But I think so many objections to our faith today are have to do with the desirability or the attractiveness of our faith. And so, I think we've just, and I think the onus or the fault perhaps lies first with us as Christians. You know, that we too, as Christians, um, so the barriers are internal as much as they're external. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we are we are anti-intellectual. And so, we have a weak theology of the body and a weak theology of beauty and a weak theology of story, uh, you know, or whatever. Uh, we, we just have a weak theology. Uh, and so, so, anti-intellectualism, I think we're just as fragmented. You know, we struggle with being a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde just as much as the other. So, why would, you know, if our universal longing for goodness is understood in terms of this longing to be whole… Yep. We're not whole and it's this longing for just justice, but we're not just and mm-hmm. it's this longing to live a life greater than ourselves, but yet yet we're living, you know, a life largely focused on on self. Um, it's not gonna be attractive. And so um And then in terms of this, you know, uh, the the third sort of internal barrier that comes to mind is this unbaptized imagination that we no longer view ourselves as part of a a universe created by God. You know, Calvin famously said, the heavens and the earth are a dazzling theater of God's glory. Yet we, I think we tend to think that we live in the theater of the absurd, you know, instead. And so we've got to re-enchant ourselves in some ways, and and perhaps, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is, the biggest barrier probably is an internal barrier in many ways uh, that has to do with us, and of course, there are lots of external barriers, um, but that's probably where I would start
1: yeah, yeah, well, there are a number of things I think uh, that we can actually resonate with our culture and say, yeah, you know what you're saying right now in terms of where where is justice in the world um, yes, let's identify where injustice is, and let's let's all. Um, admit there is something broken with our world and how people are treating each other. Um, and then other people would say, well, where is God in all of this? And I think one of the barriers is, uh, is the hiddenness of God. And I know, Tim, this is an area that you have been interested in. Um, unpack for us what, what this particular objection and barrier to, to considering the claims of Christianity is and, and what's a good response to that from a cultural approach?
2: Yeah, thanks, Mikhail. It's a, good, it's a, it's a, it's an important issue, and I think it does fit fit very well here. the The hiddenness of God is um, a, a a way of referring to a particular um, challenge that some people have a barrier, as you were talking about earlier, and that is that they feel that they feel that God is is silent, that God is um, uh, not not apparent enough. Uh, there's a, a famous story that I think has been um, that is probably mostly true. Um, but the the uh, it was a, there was a um, a famous debate in the 1940s between Bertrand Russell, the atheist mm-hmm. uh, Christian philo- or, uh, atheist philosopher, and um, Frederick Copleston, who was a uh, a Jesuit priest and a philosopher. If you're a if you're a student of philosophy, you know who Copleston is because he wrote probably the best history of philosophy. And they had a debate on the BBC. And at one point, uh, Copleston challenged Russell, what would you say to God, you know, if uh, if you were to meet him? And, Kyle, and Russell said, not enough evidence sir mm-hmm. not enough evidence mm-hmm. and um and i think that uh, even if that story is a bit apocryphal um it does reflect what a lot of people think not enough evidence where is god why doesn't you know why do, when we turn a stone over why doesn't it say made by god right on it or you know <laughs> or the stars spell out verses or something like that that would um help us to know for sure um so the hiddenness of god it it, it um it happens to people when that when they go through difficulties, um, like Habakkuk in the Bible. How long, O oh Lord, will we see violence and you not respond? Um, Le Wiesel in the in the ex, uh, in the uh, concentration camps. You know, where is God? Why didn't He come to rescue the Jewish uh, people from the Nazis? So, uh, but it occurs to people also um, who just are feeling it psychologically. They just feel distant from God. Um, we learned that that uh, Mother Teresa had uh, a long experience that some people call the Dark Night of the Soul, and she mm-hmm. felt. Cut off from God, even though she was doing amazing things in her charity and her work uh, with the with the poor children of India, she felt very distant from God. Um, so it's a broad area that that touches a lot of different people in different ways. Um, one of the things uh, that we can say in response to that is, um, first of all. It it is the truth that God is not silent, right? God reveals himself in the Bible, which is a big book, um, but God reveals himself in the world. God reveals himself in all that he's done. Um, You know, the the Bible tells us that the law is written on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to all that God is. And so sometimes when God is silent, it's because um, we have, uh, we're not listening in the right way. Um, But, but. But it's also the case that I think that there are times when God um, doesn't uh, doesn't speak and doesn't use the dramatic signs that we might like, and and um, one of the reasons why is that I think that the dramatic signs, you know, if it, if the stars would would suddenly align to spell out John three sixteen in the sky, right, or if there was a a voice from God in every language that you know said repent and believe in Jesus, um, then. Um, if, why doesn't that happen? And some of the reason, one of the reasons why I think that doesn't happen is because those dramatic signs often only tend to produce shallow faith and not really deep faith. Deep faith is produced through trials. Think about this biblically: um, the the generation that no doubt in the Bible saw and experienced the most divine signs. Were the children of Israel that Moses led out of the people out of Egypt, right? All the plagues, uh, parting the Red Sea, manna every day, pillar of fire, um, the, the the law given, the Ten Commandments twice, um, over and over and over again, and and that generation was so faithless they had to be led out to the to the to the Sinai Peninsula and wait forty years to die off, so so Yahweh could start over with a new mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you say, well, that's just one generation. Well, then I'll give you also the people of Jesus' time who 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 saw all of Jesus' miracles and still many of them refused to believe. the The great miracles don't always produce um, tremendous faith. Faith yeah. comes from uh, walking through difficult times. It's not it's not an easy truth, but I think it's a I think it's a biblical one. Yeah, um, that's very true one to reflect on.
1: Now, for those pastors and people who are listening uh, who want to engage with their friends and and kind of use this cultural approach, pastors who want to equip people on how to engage, uh, Paul, how can we come alongside people in their spiritual journey and and begin to help them with this idea of re-enchantment? Could you just give us a few really practical tips that somebody, uh, whether just a, a Normal Christian or someone who's actually in ministry, whose job it is to equip people to do this kind of thing. Um, what are some tips on how to engage?
3: The thought that comes to mind, and what I wrote about in the book, um, is is two two thoughts. One that we would learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does, and then number two that we would learn to invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And um, see and delight are two important words because you know, see has to do with perception that we would learn to to perceive in a non-disenchanted or not actually theologians talk about disenchanted perception as a kind of idolatry so we we would begin to see the world in this proper light and then delight has to do with our uh, effective response to the world like you know i think um c.s lewis was so big on the the idea of our emotions as a a kind of quasi-perceptual faculty where we perceive value in the world and so learning to to see the good and the beautiful and the true and then to value it so um I think that begins, you know, by maybe just immersing ourselves in the world world of the Bible and asking the question: How does Jesus see the world around here? You know, and we and we could branch out from there, but it's very simple things like, um, you know, uh, spending time in God's Word, studying God's Word, memorizing God's Word. These are not rocket science ideas. Um, I think within that, what you find though is like I'm thinking of in Acts three, where you have Peter and John on the way to the temple, and 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 it was very clear in that episode. Uh, you know, a beggar asked Peter for money. Peter doesn't give him money, but he heals him. But if you read that, Peter was actively looking for God to work in his life and in the lives of those around him. And so cultivating that posture of of expecting God to be at work in your life and in the lives of those around you. And then I guess the last thing I would say in terms of practical things um, is just to begin to read from people who hail from a more enchanted age. So read in, mm-hmm. on the theology mm-hmm. side, read okay. an Augustine or read a Boethius or an Anselm or, or someone like that, or, or maybe in our day and age, a C.S. Lewis or a Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in your fiction, you know, read those who help us to see the the, the sacredness of the world. And I'm thinking of folks like Wendell Berry or, or uh, Marilyn Robinson. Right now I'm reading a book by... Um, I think his name is Kent Krueger, called This Tender Land. And again, he's just helping you to see, I, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he's helping us to see like the, the sacredness of of all things uh, around mm-hmm. here. And So, those would be, I guess, some practical ways to, to begin, you know, making these connections.
1: Yeah, you're reminding me of a friend of mine, Holly Ordway, who you may know, uh, yeah. who wrote this this book about her journey um, from atheism. um, And and just to begin to crack the door open to theism, she was studying uh, the uh, holy sonnets of Don, of all things, batter my heart, O three-person God. And she says, this is what it would be like for someone who believes this to pray to feel this way, to, you know? And, and just even something like that to capture someone's imagination, it was amazing to me when I first uh, heard about that, and, and uh, she's a good person to know. But um, let's end, uh, end on this note, if there are people who want to go further, um, we're recommending your book, The Cultural Apologetics, but what other resources would you recommend, Paul, for people to get started in thinking about apologetics from this cultural way?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think you, you had mentioned Holly, Holly's work, Holly Ordway's work is excellent yeah. on the, the imagination and beauty. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know what, there's this interesting Renaissance taking place in the in the, this sort of lane of art, beauty, imagination, and and the church. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd encourage you to, to find that, whether it's Mikado Fujimori up at mm-hmm. the Fuller and the work he's doing, or the Rabbit Room down in Tennessee and the folks, Andrew Peterson and the works that he's doing, mm-hmm. follow some of that. Um, uh, uh there's uh, uh the book reimagining apologetics by by bailey that's that's in this lane and and others uh so i would just maybe start with uh, those people there's there's a lot of deeper stuff behind all this but those are those are some good entree points into the the works, the works yeah, those are
2: out. those are excellent suggestions uh, uh Maka Fujimura is is really good and um uh, as, a, as an ab- abstract painter um, of course reading C S Lewis is you know is, is never bad either uh he's he's one of the the, yeah. the the big names in this it's interesting that that his testimony includes reading George MacDonald um, and we can think the Augustine in his testimony is reading uh, Cicero and Plato that helped to to re- reimagine his mind in that way so So there's actually a long tradition of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us here today. Tim, thanks for being here.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Paul,
1: thank you you so much for joining us as well.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, Mikel.
1: And we hope that you will join us on the table next time. Um, Please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, or wherever you're consuming this content. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, and I hope you will join us again next time here on the table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu
0: slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.